0: Welcome back, everybody, from lunch. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, uh, and I'm honored to have the privilege of introducing today's uh, keynote lunch speaker. Uh, We just had elections. Uh, The presidential obviously got a lot of attention, but you might have noticed there were elections in the House and the Senate as well. Uh, And one of the things I would take away from that is I suspect many of us could not name any of the members or very few of the members that turned over. Uh, Most members come and go, leaving very little impact on history. Fortunately, our lunch speaker is not one of those members who leaves without leaving a large mark on history. Um, During his six years in the House of Representatives and 18 years in the Senate, uh, Phil Graham accumulated a record of legislative accomplishment that would make any uh, member of Congress jealous. He is perhaps best known for the Graham-Lage-Biley Act, which was passed during his chairmanship of the Senate Banking Committee, Equally important was his work on the Graham-Rutman Act, as well as the Graham-Lotta budget, both of which laid the groundwork for the budget surpluses of the 1990s, uh, which a certain past president often tries to take credit for. (laughs) Uh, In addition to being an accomplished legislator, Senator Graham is also an outstanding scholar, uh, having taught at Texas A&M University for 12 years. Prior to his time in Congress, he regularly wrote on monetary issues. Uh, For instance, I was recently rereading a 1975 article where he directly uh, tied inflation to the growth in government deficit finance spending, I think an important topic that continues to be highlighted today. Uh, He's continued his legacy of scholarship even after leaving the Senate, uh, publishing a paper, for instance, on a reinterpretation of the free silver movement. I'm not sure there are going to be a lot of questions on that, but maybe we'll see. Um, Perhaps most importantly, especially for an economist like myself, Phil Graham has long been a master of communication. Uh, We, unfortunately, are long beyond the days when the Senate floor thundered with the words of Webster, Clay, and Calhoun. But fortunately for me, uh, I was fortunate to be there when the words of Phil Graham could thunder and fill that chamber as well. Uh, And always turned on the TV whenever Graham was on the floor. Uh, Inevitably, whatever the issue of the day, Senator Graham would come to the floor and offer a clear, compelling defense of his position, which was almost always in defense of free markets. Uh, I think too often lacking in politics is that basic fundamental defense of one's values. Fortunately, that was never lacking with Senator Graham. Senator Graham was also able to masterfully combine the philosophical with the homespun. Uh, I think one of the things that's unfortunately missing today in politics uh, is a little more use of that Dickie Flats test, which we could we could definitely be using, and I hope it puts to good use in the next Congress, because that ultimately reminds us that the resources that government takes from the rest of the economy are taken from the protective members of society, small-time entrepreneurs like Dickie Flatt. Uh, Senator Graham once observed that, quote, Government is not the generator of economic growth. Working people are. Uh, I think this is something that's been too easily forgotten in the age of, you didn't build that. Um, one of the most inspiring characteristics about Graham is that his positions are derived from principle, not politics. For instance, he's long been an advocate of, I would quote, uh, the American story is a story of immigration, something I think is, not, is, is all too often lost in today's uh, debates. Uh, Also at one point, Senator Graham reflected that, quote, he did not come to Washington to be loved, uh, and I believe he followed that up with, and that he's not been disappointed in that uh, (laughs) expectation. I hate to disappoint the Senator on this point, however, uh, which is while he might not have always inspired love, he did inspire a fighting devotion among the rest of us to the cause of free markets, and I thank him for that. Uh, He has definitely shown repeatedly how the power of good economics can advance society, uh, and we have a richer society both momentarily and intellectually because of his work. Lastly, I want to make a powerful point to me at least, I always keep this in mind and and do it regularly myself, so I guess I should give some credit to where I steal it from, uh, is that Senator Graham regularly reminded us that when you advocate a policy, you should think about what your mother would think about it. Uh, And so I look forward uh, to hearing Senator Graham's view on what his mama's perspective would be today uh, on our current economic system. So with that, Uh, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from the great state of Texas.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, a lot has happened in the world since I agreed to give this presentation. (laughs) uh, So what I'm going to try to do is to be brief uh, and make a few key points. I used to, when I was a college professor, teaching in rooms not quite as sumptuous as this, be programmed to speak 50 minutes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and an hour and 15 minutes Tuesday and Thursday. But I'll try to break that. Um, I, I guess the title I would give to what I'm going to talk about is Most of What You Know is Not So. Uh, And I'm going to talk about the financial crisis and the Great Recession Because I think it's a good time now that we're having a change in the administration To really go back and look at what happened uh, And compare it to what has been the accepted view as to what happened I remember long ago I was in a monetary history class And an old economist named Hammond from the University of Chicago's book was our textbook. And he basically wrote about the monetary history of the country in the 19th century. Was a very great scholar. And immediately, I recognized that everything I thought about monetary history was wrong. Uh, And it's still true. So let me start. First of all, the financial crisis triggered in the midst of a presidential election. And as a result, there was very little chance that there was going to be any kind of coherent discussion of the crisis. Obama immediately weaponized the crisis with quotes like, greedy bankers unleashed when financial regulations were simply dismantled. Uh, and he went on to say they, recklessly, uh, they took reckless risk in pursuit of quick profits and bonuses. Well, let me start with the first myth, which probably most of you have repeated because you've heard it so many times. When the financial crisis broke, banks had relatively low reserves and were highly leveraged. That statement is totally and verifiably false. Um, The FDIC, in looking at the capital asset ratio of insured commercial banks in 2007, just before the financial crisis, found that bank capital was at 10.2%, 78% higher than it had been in 1978. The Federal Reserve Bank, looking at similar data on the capital to asset ratio of all insured financial institutions, found the capital ratio of 10.3% was almost double the 1984 level, the first year they calculated that ratio. The FDIC, in the very month that Lehman went broke, uh, concluded that 98% of all FDIC-insured institutions with $13.5 trillion of assets were well capitalized. Only 43 institutions with $58 billion of assets were undercapitalized. The World Development Indicators put out by the World Bank in 2007 found that American banks were better capitalized than any other banks in the world. Now, what happened, uh, which no one knew at the time, is that over a period of time from 1985 to 2007, 31 million subprime loans had come into existence and were in force when the financial crisis occurred. And when the housing bubble broke, the collapse in the value of those mortgages and the securities that were backed up by those mortgages collapsed, and it destroyed the financial basis of the world's financial institutions. But the point is, they were better capitalized when it happened than the banks had been for the previous 30 years the shock was so dramatic that it destroyed their capital base. As far as being over leveraged and uh, uh, risk taking, virtually all of the undercapitalization, virtually all of the risky behavior was occurring in government, not in the private sector of the economy. Um, And and just to start, let me just click through three things and be brief. The capital requirement for mortgage-backed securities based on an international regulation rated them virtually equivalent uh, to risk-free investments, and therefore, they had very, very low capital requirements. That was a decision government made, not a decision the private sector made. Beginning in 1995, the government set quotas for Freddie and Fannie, and by the time the wheels came off, 57 cents of all of every dollar of assets Freddie and Fannie held were held in subprime loans. In terms of leverage, Freddie and Fannie were leveraged 75 to 1, 2.6 times as leveraged as Lehman, and Lehman wasn't a bank. Um, And where were the regulators? The regulators were conflicted because they had conflicting directions from Congress. One direction was safety and soundness, but the newer direction was CRA lending. Lending where the objective was to promote low-income housing, and where banks were forced in order to open a teller machine or to merge with another bank or open another branch to make and hold subprime mortgages. The second myth, banks had been deregulated over the last quarter century. Totally and absolutely false. Uh, In the quarter of a century prior to 2007, There were four major banking bills that nobody can argue that they weren't regulatory bills that expanded the regulatory power of financial regulators in America. The Competitive Equity Banking Act, SEBA, of 1987. The Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery and Enforcement Act, FIREA, in 1989. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act, Fidisha in 1991, and Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002 with beyond any question expanded regulatory authority in the United States. When you look at the whole debate, it all boils down to an argument that Graham Leach bliley deregulated the banking industry. Now, let me make it clear before I talk about it, because I normally don't talk about Graham Leach bliley because I'm the Graham. But I don't get any royalties. Um, If if I thought something was wrong, I'd say so. Uh, So I'm not defending this because my name's on it. I'm simply trying to tell you what I perceive to be, believe to be, and think the evidence suggests to be the truth. Now... First of all, you need to understand that Glass-Steagall, like most major legislation, existed before the crisis existed in the Great Depression. Senator Glass had this idea that banks should make loans only on real bills. This was called the real bills doctrine, for those few of you that, that are monetary historians. Uh, I know it's a hard burden to bear but in any case the idea being that you couldn't cause inflation by lending on a real bill because it was backed up by real economic activities totally been totally discredited but that's what glass believed and glass had long wanted to split up banks taking out other functions other than narrow the narrow banking industry So when the Depression occurred, there was a problem. He had a solution that had nothing to do with the Depression. And hence, uh, we got uh, Glass-Steagall. He held a series of hearings to try to demonstrate that somehow banks were busy making loans for speculation in the stock market. But no one has ever demonstrated that fact. In fact, it's almost comical to go back and look at hearings that are cited in Supreme Court rulings as demonstrating something that is not in the hearing, in any case. um, So Glass-Steagall came into effect. Uh, Investment banking and commercial banking were separated. We were the only country in the world that did that. Um, And then over time, Regulators started eroding the law. The 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 border put in between investment banking commercial banking by the time I became chairman of the banking committee looked like Swiss cheese. City had been allowed to buy travelers insurance. Uh, we there was a Glass Steagall Act, but it was not being taken seriously in regulations. And so let me first say, Graham Leach Bliley was deregulatory only in a very, very narrow sense. It promoted more competition within the financial sector. It allowed bank holding companies to be engaged in banking, in securities, and in insurance. It did not deregulate anything. The same functions were regulated by the same regulators that had always been regulated by them. It did not repeal Glass-Steagall. Not that anybody cares, but every day uh, it repealed Glass-Steagall. Totally false. Glass-Steagall still applies to commercial banks, just as it did before. And unfortunately, Glass-Steagall did not prevent banks from holding mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. Now, all of these different functions could occur only in a financial services holding company, which could be structured only by a well-financed bank each different function was operated separately. It had to hold separate capital requirements. Uh, it could not commingle capital. It couldn't subsidize from the bank other functions. Um, now, uh, when you look at all of this, and then when no one could show that it deregulated anything, then the argument was well, there was not a clarity about regulation. It wasn't clear who controlled what. The truth is, no law was ever written that was clearer. This law not only defined who controlled what, but it had expedited consideration to the district court in the District of Columbia in case regulators had a difference about who had what regulatory authority to settle it immediately. Now, what happened was that as banks could engage through holding companies in a broader range of economic activities like banks everywhere else in the world, they actually became more stable. I didn't realize it at the time, but when Clinton spoke at the signing ceremony in some ways, he understood this bill um, uh, as, well, probably better than I did on this one function. He said, removal of barriers to competition will enhance the stability of our financial system, diversify its product offerings, and thus its source of revenues. When the financial crisis triggered, what, when the financial crisis occurred, triggered by the collapse of the value of 31 million subprime mortgages, those financial institutions that were financial services holding companies under Graham, Leach, Blyly held up a lot better uh, than the unitary financial institutions, many of which went broke. Um, Clinton said it, and I'll repeat it to move on to the next subject, There is not a single solitary example that Graham Leach Bliley had anything to do with the financial crisis. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has subsequently confirmed that, but the best confirmation is when Barack Obama had the presidency, a 60-vote margin in the Senate, a huge margin in the House, and could have done whatever he wanted to do he not only didn't repeal Gramm-Leach-Bliley, he expanded it by, re- by bringing what would be called systemically significant institutions under the law by requiring them to become financial services holding companies. Myth number three, we had a huge, costly financial crisis that was caused by banks too big to fail, and we can never let it happen again. Not one of those statements is true. Um, If the bailout had been about institutions too big to fail, there might have been 12 institutions bailed out in the country. There were 954 financial institutions bailed out. A significant number of those 12 financial institutions that might have been deemed too big to fail did not need a bailout, did not want a bailout, but were forced to take the bailout. Um, Now, another part of that myth is that when Lehman failed, they were too big to fail and so it destabilized the financial system. Uh, Lehman was not too big to fail. And it didn't destabilize the financial system. Lehman was failed. Lehman failed because it was holding massive quantities of mortgage-backed securities. And those mortgage-backed securities had already infected the financial base of every large institution in America, and many small institutions in America. So uh, Lehman was simply the the canary uh, in the mine. Now, another myth. This is almost heresy, but I'm going to say it, that the bailout was huge and costly. Totally false. Uh, I wasn't in government. I didn't have anything to do with this. Uh, this is I don't have a dog in this fight But the truth is it was the most efficient bailout in the financial history of the world as far as I'm aware And, and let me ha- go over what happened um, Let me start with the SNL bailout because I was in office when that happened and I watched it very closely and in the end, it cost the taxpayer $258 billion. This was a bailout, not of SNLs, they were closed left and right. This was a bailout of depositors in SNLs. And these were losses that had occurred 10 or 20 years ago that simply weren't recognized as SNLs went on lending. Gotten in the in the chicken fried chicken business and all kinds of other things. Now, in the financial crisis, two hundred um, and fifty-eight billion dollars went. Then everything is in two thousand nine dollars. Went to banks and financial institutions. Two thirds of that was paid back in fourteen months. was paid back in 24 months, and by the time it was over, the federal government had made $24 billion on the bailout of uh, the financial system. The losses occurred with a bailout of General Motors, which had nothing to do with the bill, but government simply decided to use the money for that purpose. Uh, The fact that the money was paid back so quickly suggests that in the end, the problem was largely a liquidity crisis and not a solvency crisis. Now, let me turn to the last point and throw it open for questions. What turned the subprime crisis into the Great Recession? The truth is that within six months of becoming president, Barack Obama had a recovery underway a recovery he had nothing to do with. That recovery faltered, whereas by all historical perspective, the perspective of the 10 previous recessions in post-war America, this should have been a strong, powerful recovery. Why did it turn out to be weak? Because of bad economic policies. To summarize a long story which you've all heard uh, and many of you hopefully repeated, uh, it occurred because of a massive expansion in government that turned banks into public utilities uh, that have huge amounts of reserves, $20 of reserves for every dollar they're required to hold, uh, that uh, do stress tests that uh, are audited, uh, where Federal Reserve Bank employees sit in their boardroom and they know their regulators better than they know their customers, but they don't make loans and they don't serve as a generator of significant economic growth. In short, Socialism worked no better in America than it had worked in Europe. We had European policies, and as a result, we have European results. So let me stop. Maybe I should make one more point since I've got time. I'm worried about two hidden costs of Obama policy. One is this run up in the debt. If you look at What has happened to the federal debt held by the public, and you look at the cost, and you look at average interest rates for the 20 years prior to the financial crisis, for the 20 years prior to 2007, if we had normal interest rates as defined by the average of that 20 years, the debt service cost would rise by $612 billion, which is 120% of the economic growth we had in 2016. It's roughly equal to what we spent, spent on defense last year. So that debt is out there. That burden is there and will be until Jesus comes back. But it doesn't show up on the books. But it will show up if the economy starts to recover. And if interest rates rise, just taking our current deficit and that deficit would give us a near record level of deficit spending. Requiring us to borrow all that money at the very time the private sector is trying to recover and that competition will only drive up interest rates faster. Last point. I'm also worried about the explosion in the monetary base. Now, I know uh, the Fed believes that they, by paying interest on reserves, uh, that they can control it. I know they believe they can do reverse repos, which is basically borrowing against it. But look, if this economy had a full-blown honest-to-God recovery anything remotely similar to the Reagan recovery, Um, banks would start lending. Those $20 of excess reserves for every required dollar of reserves would end up being used to expand the money supply. And I know the Fed says they can manage this, that they can hold these assets to maturity, but if that happened, they would have to start selling and trying to sop up all this liquidity they've created. They've gotten virtually nothing for the liquidity since the initial financial crisis. And what will that do? It will mean that they're selling assets at the same time the government's selling debt because it's got to pay interest on the debt that's been run up at zero interest rates. At the same time, the private sector is borrowing. So we face a real headwind in this recovery. The good news is it is not as bad as the headwind that Ronald Reagan faced. And if we have a bold program, it can be overpowered. With that, let me stop and throw it open. I'd be very glad to try to answer some questions. And I'm a little deef. I heard perfectly well when I came to Congress long ago, but people yelled at me, and so I don't hear too good. So if you'll speak loudly and right into the mic, it would be appreciated.
0: And of course, wait for the microphone. Uh, Identify yourself, affiliation, uh, and try to have your question in the form of a question. Uh, we'll right
1: back here. I'll try to have my answer in the form of an answer <laughs> uh,
0: Good afternoon, Senator My name is Aaron Cadell I'm with uh, Capstone here in Washington, D.C. And if you were today advising uh, Congressman Henseling or, or uh, incoming banking chairman uh, Crapo. Crapo Sorry, I was about to say Shelby it's Crapo. Um, How would you advise them to Uh, modify Dodd-Frank? Are there any parts, if you were repealing and replacing Dodd-Frank, how would you do it? Thank you.
1: Well, I would modify Dodd-Frank by putting it out of its misery. Uh, that, That doesn't mean that there's nothing in it I don't like. In fact, the one provision in it that I thought was pretty good was the requirement that lending institutions, at least for some period of time, have some contingency liability on default on mortgages they make. It seemed like an enlightened idea, and of course the Obama administration never put it into effect. Uh, But Dodd-Frank was gross overkill It had nothing to do with the financial crisis. It didn't even address mortgage-backed securities or subprime lending or Freddie or Fannie or housing policy. It was based on the false thesis that the crisis occurred because of greedy bankers, profit seekers, God forbid, and uh, that they had to be bridled and controlled and watched and directed. And so it was an agenda that the so-called progressives, which is American for socialists, had had from the 1880s of having the government control the banks, and under Obama, much to his credit, given his agenda, gave it to him. Astounding success. A disaster for America. But if that's your agenda, uh, the fact that he did it is extraordinary. Um, but it needs to be undone if, if you want an America dominated by government that doesn't grow and doesn't prosper, that's what you want. But if you want an America that is dominated by freedom and opportunity and a chance for ordinary people to, to exhibit extraordinary qualities and succeed, then you want to get rid of it. And I want the latter America. <laughs>
0: Well, I think we've got time for one more question. We're running uh, mm-hmm. out right there in the back.
1: No. We out of time? Yeah. Oh, I'll talk to Good afternoon, you.
0: Afternoon, Senator. I'm in Hall at George Mason University. Um, so now with Republican control of the White House and both houses of Congress, i'm curious from your your own experience your own perspective what will be the major headwinds and the major difficulties in terms of debt reduction over the next couple of years and where do you see the resistance being i mean with now having you know such um, republican control we've we've heard many times that debt reduction is a major priority but I don't think many of us expect it to be quick or easy. So where do you see the the speed bumps being? So I'm gonna reinterpret that, simplify it, is where the major speed bumps, both in the economy and politically, and uh, with some of the proposals that are being done, is uh, the probability, possibility of deficit reduction just out the window?
1: Uh, I think it's not gonna be the first priority. (laughs) Um, I think That first priority is gonna be trying to get the economy growing. I hope they do the tax cut first. Uh, I don't understand this uh, infrastructure mania. Every road in America is under construction now. Uh, I don't know of any evidence to substantiate the claim that infrastructure since World War II has ever stimulated an economy anywhere in the world, anywhere. Uh, but boy is it popular and so uh, I think uh, that's out there. I think the challenge that Republicans have in repealing uh, uh, Obamacare is they want to repeal Obamacare, they hate Obamacare, but when you start getting into the specifics Are they going to make insurance companies sell insurance to people with pre-existing conditions? Well, sure as hell sounds like it. Uh, Are they going to have the government subsidize people with high cost? Some people think yes. Are they going to then have to make people buy insurance to affect the risk pools? Maybe. Well, that's Obamacare. (laughs) So I mean. You got to decide fish or fowl. I mean, you cannot spend hundreds of billions of dollars without benefiting somebody. So, if we want to benefit all the people that have lost from it, you got to recognize that there are people that have gained from it. Uh, and so, I'm worried about that. But it's going to be challenging. But look, I will give the president, I may regret saying this in five minutes. But the president has made two appointments. The vice president in Pence was a brilliant appointment, A+. And then Priebus, as chief of staff, was enlightened. So he can and may very well screw it up, but he hadn't. At this point, in my classroom, he's got good grades. Could change fast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.